0: Well, now it's lovely to be back with you here in South Lanarkshire. Uh, A boy from Les Mehago viewed Hamilton as the big smoke. Uh, It's not quite as big a smoke when you live in Glasgow. But it's nice to be here this morning. Thank you very much for your warm welcome. This morning and this evening, I want to look with you at the last two chapters in John's Gospel and uh, want to look at two examples of common problems. Uh, ...that people have when faced with the risen Lord Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus is really the defining feature of all of our lives. And yet, often, it falls into difficulty. And we have difficulty with that relationship. Let's read together, then, uh, the first individual that we're going to encounter today... ...who had difficulty in his relationship with Jesus... And we're going to read in John chapter 20 from verse 19. And we're picking up the narrative of Holy Week on the evening of the resurrection day. On the evening, verse 19, John 20, of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written... That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, eight years ago, I had pneumonia. As a 48-year-old man, I assumed I was dying. I might as well have said, as a man, I assumed I was dying. I went to the GP. That was a statement in itself. I didn't know who my GP was. I'd never been before. GP didn't know me. Looked at me, said, who are you? I told him. He checked me out and said, you have pneumonia. But effectively, he said, um, in response to my question, Am I going to die? Uh, Your pneumonia is serious, David, but it's not terminal. I think that phrase, serious but not terminal, is a good summary of the Bible's view of doubt. There are two extremes that we can adopt when we think about the issue of doubt within the Christian faith. The first extreme is we can be too soft on doubt. Well, everyone has them, don't they? I do, and so do you, if you're being completely honest. And so we can often accommodate doubt and say, don't worry about it. We we, we all have doubts. It's just a place I'm in just now. Don't be concerned. There's nothing wrong. But that approach, if it's not checked and balanced, can quickly and easily slide off into a lifestyle of unbelief. So that's the first extreme. We can be too soft on doubt. We can say, it doesn't really matter. When actually it does. But there's another extreme. We can be too hard on doubt. We can demonise doubt to the point where if you have any doubts at all, then you can't possibly have faith. You mustn't ever have any doubts. And I think that's partly why we keep that mask up to pretend that everything's always okay. Because we're afraid of others Casting judgment on us and saying, Well, if you have doubts, you can't possibly believe. You may not even be a believer at all. But the Bible's view of doubt is somewhere in the middle. Like my pneumonia, I think we have to say the Bible views doubt as serious. But equally, it doesn't view doubt as terminal. It need not be terminal. Doubt, as we will see today, can be a stepping stone, a springboard, if you will, to a tougher, stronger, more resilient and more robust faith. And that's what we find here in our text in John chapter 20. Doubting Thomas, as everyone knows him, Is in a serious condition here when we meet him. But he's not in a terminal condition. Now, now I don't know where you are this morning in terms of the strength of your faith or the issue of doubt within your own life. I don't know what the doubts are that you struggle with. They'll be different for all of us. But what I want to say to you is that these doubts are serious. But come with me to see why they need not be terminal in your life this morning. So let's look firstly at the barriers to belief. The first barrier to belief in Thomas's life was withdrawal. Now, I work in the NHS and when there's a significant clinical incident that takes place, when something goes wrong, which... It sometimes does. I hesitate to say it often does. None of you will ever go back. Um, When things sometimes go wrong in in the NHS in a significant clinical incident, a, a, a thing is commissioned called a root cause analysis. That's a fancy word for finding out the root cause of the problem. Let's get to the bottom of this. What's the problem behind the problem? And it's sometimes the problem behind the problem, behind the problem, behind the problem. You have to dig quite deeply well, let's have a root cause analysis of Thomas's doubt. There were reasons for his doubt. And in verse 24, we discover one of the reasons. He'd withdrawn from the believing community, did you notice? John tells us he wasn't present when Jesus appeared to the disciples. Now, we don't know the reason. We don't know if he had a valid excuse for not being there. We don't know the reason. John doesn't tell us. But we are told the outcome. The outcome of his absence was unbelief and doubt. They saw and believed in verse 20, he didn't, verse 25. Now, although Thomas isn't criticised here, it would be safe, I would imagine, for us to assume that putting yourself in a place apart from the people of God, in times of pressure and opposition, will almost certainly set your bias towards doubt and away from faith. And make no mistake, the disciples were under pressure. Jesus had been crucified. Their hopes had been dashed. The reason the crowd, as we heard this morning, turned on Jesus so vehemently was because he wasn't the Jesus they'd been looking for. They wanted a Jesus to rid them of opposition from the Romans. To set up the Jewish state again in all of its Davidic glory and all the glory it had when David was the king. They wanted Israel to be great again. And here was the Messiah who was going to deliver it. And so they welcome him as a king. But they didn't have a category for a suffering Messiah or a king who would win through dying. And so the disciples were under pressure. Jesus had been killed and they were likely to be next. And I think it's safe to say for us in our culture uh, here, and even in Scotland today, Scotland, did you know, is the, is the most rapidly growing secularised nation in the world right now. No country in the world is becoming secular at a faster rate than ours. And we're starting to feel that little bit of opposition and pressure. It's not that great if you compare it to Somalia or places like that, but, but it's, it's, it's it's stronger than it was, isn't it? And in these times of opposition and, 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 and fear, it would be unwise for us to separate ourselves from the community of believing people, wouldn't it? Make far more sense actually to join with other Bible-believing people across the country and stand together. Thomas withdrew. But that didn't help his doubt. That fed his doubt. Now, John has already told us in chapter 14 of his gospel the kind of person Thomas was. We're all different. We're all individuals, aren't we? We all have preferences. We all have different types of personality. Back in chapter 14, we discover that Thomas was the kind of person who liked things to be concrete. He wasn't a great conceptual thinker. Now that might be you today. But even if it's not, the principles apply. Here was Thomas. Here was part of his struggle. Jesus in chapter 14 is saying to the disciples, one day you're going to be going where I'm going. And you know how to get there. That's quite a conceptual statement. Thomas, the cynic, the concrete thinker, says effectively to Jesus, Lord, if we haven't got a sat-nav, how can we find the way? That's effectively what he said. But if we haven't got a postcode, how can we use the sat-nav? He, he didn't know what the destination was. He couldn't, he couldn't conceptualise that. He couldn't make it concrete enough. If we don't know the destination, Lord, how, how do you expect us to get there? So we know that Thomas had a natural tendency towards cynicism. That he was a concrete thinker. He liked things in black and white. He liked evidence. But his withdrawal, you see, only fueled that natural cynicism. And whatever your weakness is, whether it's that you're a concrete thinker or a conceptual thinker, whatever it is, by withdrawing from the people of God, these natural tendencies will be enhanced. The next reason for Thomas's doubt uh, is certainly more culpable on his part. Because not only is there withdrawal here as a barrier to belief, but there's willfulness too. Do you notice that in verse 25? It's quite a strong statement. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, says Thomas... And put my finger where the nails were. And put my hand into his side. Do you notice these next words? I will not believe it. I will not believe it. Thomas's doubts are expressed in a willful decision. To refuse to believe the eyewitness testimony of his friends. There's a stubbornness here, do you see? A choice not to believe. And it's always a choice. We have a friend who, about two years ago, (coughs) insisted that an announcement was read out to the church, (coughs) stating that she now refused to believe that Christianity was true. (coughs) It had been a charade all along, she said. I now no longer believe it. And I want you all to know, I do not believe. That was the end point of her failure to deal with doubts upstream. And a choice was made to no longer believe. And I don't know where you are on that continuum this morning, but I know that Behind every face there's challenges and struggles somewhere. And you might be on that cusp of unbelief this morning. And this might be what you're saying. I don't really care what the other people are saying. I don't care about their testimony. I don't know if I believe anymore. (coughs) These doubts are serious. And at this point, do you see, they're in danger of becoming terminal. And so, there is a warning. Although Jesus responds to Thomas' challenge by appearing to the disciples again when he's present the following week, Jesus issues a challenge of his own to Thomas. Thomas. He's accommodating enough to say, well, you wanted evidence, here's the evidence. But the evidence on its own won't solve anything. You still have a choice to make. So Jesus' challenge in verse 27, do you notice? A direct challenge to Thomas' statement in in, in, in verse 25. Jesus' challenge in verse 27, stop doubting and believe. So if what I said earlier about being on the cusp of unbelief applies to you this morning, hear the words of Jesus, hear the warning of Jesus, hear the challenge of Jesus this morning. And it's blunt. Stop doubting and believe. You see, all the words for doubt in the New Testament carry the idea of double-mindedness. In the Bible, to believe is to be one-minded in accepting the truth about who Jesus is. These things are written, John tells us, that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why John wrote his gospel. So to believe is to be one-minded in accepting that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the Son of God, the saviour of the world. In the Bible, to disbelieve is to be of one mind in rejecting the truth about Jesus. I do not believe he is the Son of God. To doubt is to waver between the two. And James tells us in his letter later in the New Testament. That to remain in a state of doubt leaves us to be open, to be blown and tossed about by the wind. A double-minded person, James says, is unstable in all he does. Now, James doesn't say a, a person who is caught between believing and unbelieving is unstable in some of the things he does. Part of his life is unstable. It's not what he says. He says to waver between belief about who Jesus is and Disbelief about who Jesus is makes life unstable in every aspect of life. There is no stability in any decision making processes whatsoever. No stability in your family life. No stability in your work life. No stability in your moral life. You see, being disbelieving or double minded doesn't just impact on what happens inside your head. It leads to dangerous and unstable actions in the real world. At home and at work, how you use your time, the decisions you make about everything from your money to your relationships. So there's a warning here from Jesus. Stop doubting this morning and believe. But what is the basis of belief then, having looked at the barriers? How can we move from unbelief and double-mindedness to belief and confidence? Because this incident isn't simply recorded to show us the barriers to uh, to belief. It's there to show us that although doubt is serious, it need not be terminal. It can be the springboard to belief itself. And believing is the biggest single issue in John's Gospel. The, 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 The word believe, believed, believes, believing used 77 times in John's Gospel. And verse 31 tells us why. Because as he wrote his gospel, and remember John was writing later than the other gospel writers, and the church at this point was under pressure, under persecution. Belief that Jesus actually, really, truly was the Son of God was under attack. Was the divinity of Jesus absolute? Was that true? Is that what he really said about himself? Is that who he really claimed to be? John writes his gospel as an old man now, looking back with this passion on his heart. These things are written, he says. I could have written lots of stuff, but I've picked out stuff specifically to help you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the first basis of belief is witness. And we notice that in verse 19 to 25. Throughout the gospel, John emphasises the importance of believing in Jesus, not just as some vague concept, but on the basis of evidence. Earlier in his gospel, he structured the whole gospel around six signs Or six evidences, six proofs, witnessed by his own eyes that Jesus is the Son of God. And here the eyewitness account of the disciples appears in verse 25. We have seen the Lord. It was an eyewitness account, of course, of the risen Jesus that qualified these people, these men, to be apostles. Apostles. I, I, incidentally, that's why Paul had so many problems in Corinth and various other New Testament churches. Because he wasn't here that day. He wasn't a first-hand, first-day eyewitness of the risen Lord. Do you remember what he says about himself? I'm an apostle because I was, as one that was born in a dislocated way, I was born out of due time. I, I had to have a special encounter with Jesus. With the risen Jesus. But it was an encounter with the risen Jesus. Personal living face to face encounter where there isn't Jesus that qualified these men to be apostles. So these eyewitness accounts provide the basis for our belief. If we go back to the crucifixion account in John chapter 19, if you just turn back there with me for a second, in John chapter 19, John puts in a very interesting comment into the narrative. Now we know this story. Let's just go back to verse 32. The soldiers came, Jesus is on the cross. And it's time for the bodies to be removed because Sabbath is coming. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, look, verse 33 in chapter 19, they found he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, you would expect at this point that John would just keep telling the story. And what happened next? But he doesn't. Look what he does. He puts in a little parenthesis. He puts in a little footnote. A little note to self. The man who saw it has given testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so you may also believe. What a strange thing to write in the middle of a crucifixion narrative. I saw that with my own eyes. I saw the soldier pierce Jesus' side with my own eyes. I, I, and I'm telling you that because I saw it with Moan eyes, and I'm telling you that so that you might believe that what I'm telling you is true. Because there's a direct link between what John saw in chapter 19, verse 34, and what he describes in chapter 20, verse 20. <coughs> After this, Jesus showed the disciples as he appeared his hands, but notice, and his side he saw the wounds of Jesus now he'd seen the wounds of Jesus when he died and at that time he wants us to know I saw that with my own eyes and I'm telling you the truth I saw it with my own eyes I saw the nails in his hands I saw the spear going into his side and I want you to know that I saw it so that you may believe After Jesus said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And, and, And therefore, we come to wounds as a basis of belief. Because in that verse 34 of chapter 19 that we read, John gives a detail about the crucifixion that the other three writers don't. One of the soldiers, says John, pierced Jesus' side with a spear. None of the other gospel writers mention that. This is important. All crucified victims had hand wounds. All crucifixion <coughs> victims had foot wounds. Many crucifixion victims had broken legs to hurry on the death. But Jesus had a side wound. That was unusual. And that's why John tells us in chapter 19 that he saw the soldiers pierce Jesus' side with a spear. Because here, in chapter 20, a figure appears before them with hand wounds and foot wounds. Could have been any crucifixion victim at this point. But Jesus had a side wound. Do you see? It was really Jesus. And in chapter 19, he really was dead. And in chapter 20, he really was alive. Jesus was known and identified by his scars. And the scars and the wounds of Jesus tell us that he is the son of God and he has risen from the dead. These scars now define him. In the Batman movie, The Dark Knight, (coughs) Heath Ledger's chilling, disfigured Joker chillingly utters the words, Do you want to know where I got these scars? He was defined by his scars. His outward scars were presented in that movie as a visible picture of his inner torment and turmoil, of his psychosis. In a far, far greater way, friends, our Lord Jesus... ...is defined by his scars. He's known by the scars. Michael Card, a songwriter... ...whom I love very much... ...put it this way perfectly... ...in a song that he wrote about the scars of Jesus... ...called Known by the Scars. I hope you can read that. And here's what he said in that song. After they had slain him... ...and laid him in the grave... ...and the ones he loved had fled into the dark... Then his love and power raised him and God won the victory. But they only recognised him by the scars. The marks of death God chose never to erase. The wounds of love's eternal war. When the kingdom comes with its, with its perfected sons, us, he will be known by the scars. Even then we'll know it's Jesus because of his scars. It's the wounded, crucified Jesus with a side wound and hand wounds who is alive, and the wounds of death inspire belief. Do you see? When they are seen in a living, breathing man. Stop doubting and believe. But our belief isn't based only on the witness of the apostles and the wounds of the cross. Our journey from doubt to belief is ultimately determined by our response to the word of Christ. Do you notice? There are two words from the risen Jesus here that provide a basis for belief. And the first word occurs twice in our passage. It occurs in verse 26 and it occurs in verse 19. It actually occurs in verse 21 as well, three times. Peace, 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 peace be with you. Now, on first reading, uh, Jesus' proclamation of peace to his disciples uh, looks like a remedy for their anxiety. Yeah, I, I know you're not used to people appearing in front of you unannounced, so don't be scared. Peace be upon you. But that would be a very superficial understanding of what's really going on here. Come with me to Leviticus 16. <coughs> not going to turn there, but in your mind. Leviticus 16 is a passage that tells us about Israel's great day as a nation. Every year. It was the day of atonement. Yom Kippur. Celebrated in Orthodox Judaism to this day. It was the day when the high priest would enter the most holy place to offer a sacrifice for the sin of the people. And what would happen is the high priest would enter the holy place and disappear out of sight. He would not be seen while he made atonement. And the people would wait and wonder. Will he be heard? What will happen? And then suddenly, in that holy place, the curtain moves. And there is Aaron, the high priest. And he stands in front of the people and he raises his hands and pronounces God's peace on the nation for another year. Shalom. The people were at peace with God now, do you see? Because atonement had been made. And now here comes Jesus, the great priest, the priest par excellence, the priest of whom all these other priests in the Old Testament spoke of. And he disappears into the grave, he disappears into death itself. And he's gone. He's out of sight. Will he be heard? Will his sacrifice have been enough? And then the curtain moves in the upper room. Do you see? And there he is. And what does he say (coughs) to his people? Shalom. Peace. Not just for another year, folks. But forever. For us. Peace with God. Eternal peace. On the basis of his atonement. And so that's the first word of Christ that we base our belief on. The peace that he offers as a result of his atoning sacrifice. But the second word is in verse 27. Believe. And Thomas obeys the word of the risen Christ. Jesus commands him to believe. He obeys the word of the risen Christ. And he believes. And verse 28 in John's gospel. Is the high point of the whole gospel. Because if you remember John's purpose in writing. His purpose is that we may believe. Jesus is the son of God. And that through believing we may have life in his name. Here is the great climax of John's gospel. My Lord. And my God, Lord Jesus, you are my Lord, but more than that, you are my God, you are the son of the living God, you are divine, you are the eternal son. Now this is a huge statement for Jesus to accept. Here is Thomas saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God. If Thomas is wrong, and he's been wrong before, here is Jesus' chance to correct him and say, Thomas, you're an awfully nice chap. I really appreciate you saying such nice things about me, but, you know, that's over-egging the pudding a bit. Prophet, (laughs) yes. King, yes. Priest, yes. But, you know, I'm not divine, actually, Thomas. You know, only God can be given worship like this. And to a Jewish person, that kind of worship could only be given to God alone, do you see? That's one of the reasons why the Jewish authorities wanted to kill Jesus. Because he said he was the Son of God. So Jesus has an opportunity here to correct Thomas if he's not the Son of God, do you see? But he doesn't do that. He accepts Thomas's worship as... The son of God as indeed he accepts ours today and did more than that as he demands ours today. Stop doubting and believe. Here is one who is worthy of our full trust. And so as we close this morning. And as we come to believe or to believe again or to believe more strongly or to recommit ourselves to that belief. John wants us to come to the same conclusion as Thomas. Blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. You, me, us. But he wants us to believe on the same basis, do you see? The witness of the apostles, the wounds of the cross, and the word of the risen Christ. John wants us here this morning in Hamilton to receive the same blessing of God's shalom, God's peace on our lives. An eternal relationship with him. Given to us by Jesus without ever having seen him. That's remarkable. And what is that blessing? John tells us in verse 31. As you believe, by believing, you may have life in his name. What's the best known verse in John's gospel? Let's look at it through different eyes now together. John 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Stop doubting and believe. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we ask now that you will take your word and write it deeply into our hearts and lives. We pray that you will help us to challenge the unbelief in our lives by the presence and power of your Spirit. And we pray that we may be drawn to believe and to believe again. In the Lord Jesus, and in believing to receive that eternal life in His name. Bless your word, too, as we pray, then, in Jesus' name. Amen.